0: Welcome to Energy Radio, a podcast by CEM Engineering. Hello, welcome to this episode of Energy Radio. This is episode 19, a special edition focused on the intersection of energy and the coronavirus. With me today, I have Thomas Van Stee, founder and CEO of N-Powered. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us in this uh, very not boring and busy time. Uh, How are you this morning? (laughs) Thank you for having us. Uh, feeling great. Uh, thanks
1: for still healthy so far. Waterloo doesn't have too many cases, but it is uh, starting to spread pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, it is quite something. Um, so I think that will probably dominate some of our conversation, but uh, can you start just, you know, you're the founder, CEO of Empowered. Um, You know, can you give us background on the company, you know, kind of the the Genesis, you know, or the creation story, or the you know the episode zero zero one, if you were a comic book of N powered, how did you <laughs> come to be? Uh, if for if you can.
1: Sure. So we started almost exactly five years ago in March uh, March eighteenth, twenty fifteen. So it's almost exactly five years ago, and so I actually it wasn't in energy energy industry at all. I introduction to this world was when my parents' dairy farm got locked into an energy contract with a door to door hedging company. They used to be quite common here in Ontario. They still are fairly prevalent in the US. Unfortunately here those energy contracts almost always end up costing you more, not less. Right. And so I was trying to get my parents out of that contract. You can't the contract socially bullets. And in that process, I started to learn a lot about the energy market. And what you realize is that we all understand electricity prices are cheap at night, expense during the day. That actually has very little to do with the true cost of power because it actually changes almost every five minutes and it's cheap almost always, but then extremely expensive for a short periods of time. And so fundamentally, what we do as a company is we predict when those expensive times come so that our companies can shift their usage away from expensive periods to save money. So last year, our customers on average saved about 48% on their total electricity bill, about $40 million in total, and we actually have one customer that saved 93% on their total electricity bill. So the savings are pretty phenomenal if you're really good at managing all these different programs. Our job is to help you understand all the ins and outs of your energy bill, because unfortunately these things are unnecessarily complicated, but instead of doing helping you manage your energy costs.
0: And so, just quickly back to the uh, the story with your parents' farm. You you, you kind of catch wind they've locked into a five year deal, and pretty quickly you find out that they're paying a lot more than premium. Or like, what can you give us a little bit of specifics around that?
1: Yeah, so they they were paying about fifteen thousand more on electricity, which for a family owned farm obviously sure. adds up quite a bit. Um, unfortunately, I've met farms that were. More worth off than them. I actually had one grain elevator, which is family owned, that was spending roughly $150,000 more in natural gas than they should be per year. Wow. So it's, you find these contracts where, and I'm not saying that all these good companies are bad. There are certainly some good companies out there. But there's, especially the ones going door to door, you have to be very wary about what you're getting into. Right. Because they tell you that the world's going to explode tomorrow and that prices are going through the roof and you got to lock in today. And unless you really know what you're getting into, you can get screwed. And so my parents, what seemed like a good deal, and Ontario, unfortunately, is far more complicated than other markets in the US because of this fee called the global adjustment. In Ontario, your total electricity cost looks like it's about you know, 14, 15 cents. So when someone shows up your door saying they're gonna offer you five cents, that sounds phenomenal. What they don't tell you is that the actual cost of power is two cents and the global adjustment is 13, and they're only locking in that two cent part. So they guarantee you five, you're actually, Paying three cents more per kilowatt hour than you otherwise would. And that's, you know, I would say shame on the regulator for making it that complicated. Unfortunately, it's not really their fault. It's just how the market's set up here. But for the average business who thinks they're doing the right thing because of that global difference, it's actually not the right thing.
0: Yeah, and it's tough for them, right? Because, you know, in this case, you know, milking cows is their prime business. Or, you know, in our space, you know, making a, a finished good is their business. But in both cases, energy is a big input. So they have to, focus on it but they don't it's not their core focus and so I think that's why folks like yourselves can add tremendous uh, value to the marketplace because it is so important to people but they don't have the uh, the, the uh, experience and, and knowledge base that, that you have to help them so um, no that's that's great thank you for sharing and then and powered as an organization you know where are you how big are you kind of some some tape around the company?
1: Sure, so we're based in Waterloo, which is kind of Canada's little tech hub. We have Waterloo University just down the street. It's a great school for tech talent. Uh, we're about 16 people right now, although we are hiring. So if you're interested in working in the energy industry, check us out. Uh, so we're, about five, like I said, about five years old. So we've been roughly doubling the team every year. The first two years it was just me, so it's pretty easy to double from that. But now we're uh, starting to actually build a team pretty quickly. So we're mostly based in Ontario, which is where most of the customers are, but we are increasingly moving into other markets, both in Canada, but also the US.
0: Cool. And um, so 16 people doubling kind of year over year, um, growing into Western Canada, Eastern Canada, where where in Canada are you, do you see growth? Mostly looking into Alberta. Um,
1: A lot of the other Canadian provinces have fairly cheap electricity prices. Like Quebec, for example, is very cheap and that doesn't mean we can't get savings in those markets it's just you know if i show up at a factory and say i can save you 20 grand no one's gonna care it's just not enough money for anyone's time right so we mostly work our general target is if i can save you 100 grand or more that's where i'll pay my attention
0: and and are you engaged by clients primarily on a um a consulting basis providing advisory services or what's your business model no we're more of a support tech company and uh, we
1: prioritize essentially forecasts and understanding the energy markets. So usually the reports that we provide for customers is completely free of charge. That's just our way of helping you understand how your bills are created. But capturing the savings is really where the technology comes into play. So we've developed models, essentially artificial intelligence, machine learning algorithms that allow us to forecast energy markets more accurately than we know. And that's what allows us to understand when those peak pricing happens. Because the issue you run into is if everyone knows it's more at 7 p.m. the peak and everyone turns off the power tomorrow at 7 p.m., then it's no longer a peak because everyone just shut down. Right. And so our you know, what we have to do is from a technology perspective is bring to the market game theory that understands what the market behavior actually is so that when I tell you it's a peak, it is a peak and you can capture you know, maximize your savings while minimizing any disruption to your operation.
0: So let's let's take that then and, and give us you know, we have people listening from, from all over and, and different jurisdictions, you, most of your work at this point is in Ontario. Can you give us a, a primer on, you know, formally I think it's called the Industrial Conservation Initiative. Um, you know, we more kind of colloquially call it Global Adjustment and, and Class A. Can you give us a, an overview on, on, you know, how that program works and, and why kind of paying attention to it is so important? Sure. So, in Interior, like I said, it's called the ICI program,
1: Industrial Conservation Initiative. There's versions of this program active in most of the U.S. markets as well. So, it's not like basically what I'm saying is active for most markets. The fundamentals of this program is that when you look at how the electricity market works, you have that one hour in the middle of the summer where we have to have enough power plants to provide electricity for that peak, peak summer day. And then the rest of the year, you'll literally have power plants sitting there doing nothing, they're just idling. And that's an incredible waste of capital in our energy infrastructure, but it's just the nature of the energy market, because it's way too expensive to store electricity today. And so what the energy operators started realizing was rather than spending a billion dollars building a new power plant, why don't I pay factories $100 million to turn off during that same hour? And in so doing, we still are able to make sure we don't black out some electricity grid, but we don't have to spend a billion dollars on a power plant. And so that's essentially what's created what's called a peak pricing program. And these exist across the U.S. In Ontario, it's called the ICI program. It's just the name we've used. The way, though, that at a factory, of course, you are gonna shut down your production. You better be paid enough to be worth your time, because that's an incredible impact to the operation. Right. And in most of the U.S. markets, you're looking at around 50 to 100,000 dollars a year in payments per megawatt, which you know your average mid-tier factory is about a megawatt have electricity usage. So you're looking at about 50 to 100 k a year in savings. So it's not bad. In Ontario, though, it's now at $600,000 a megawatt. So it's six times the savings you're going to get per hour that you shut down here versus what you get in the US. So it's especially important here to manage this program. In fact, if you're really good at this, and as I mentioned earlier, we have some companies that are very flexible, they were able to cut their electricity bills more than half. Like our average company saves 48%, and then we have that one company saving 90%. So the savings are huge if you can manage this effectively. The problem here, as I was trying to allude to earlier, is if everyone knows tomorrow is the hottest day of the year and everyone shuts down, it's no longer a peak because everyone shut down. And so the issue that people started running into is that there's only an interior five hours a year that matter. So they're measuring your usage on those five hours, but they are the five highest usage hours of the year. But it's really hard to know what hours are those hours in advance. And that's where companies like us come in. Because if you're trying to do this on your own, you're probably shutting down your factory 30 times a year. It starts to eat away at those savings pretty quickly. Whereas last year, we got all five of the peaks that matter with only seven attempts. So that's a nearly perfect record of when we gave you a call, it was a peak.
0: Say that again, you you hit all five with only seven attempts?
1: Correct. Wow. Historically, we've never had to give more than 10. Okay. Last year, we did it in seven.
0: And that's important and so that's for your, your uh, clients because in a lot of cases they're curtailing production. Like, you know, why is it, you know, why can't you just every day, like why is it important how few times you give the message? I mean, there's, it's
1: the same for most of the companies we work with. Obviously, most of our customers, I would say about 80%, they are physically shutting down their equipment when we call them. So like you said, if I'm calling you 30 times a year and you're physically shutting down your factory 30 times a year, that's an enormous impact on your operations. And every time you do that, it's going to cost you fifty dollars to $100,000. So if I call you 30 times, suddenly those savings that I promised don't matter anymore. It doesn't make sense. But it's also the same if you have a battery or a generator, because every time you discharge your battery or turn on your generator, that's putting wear and tear in your equipment. Uh, in the case of a generator, you're burning fuel. So regardless of how you're responding to these peak events, you want to minimize the number of times you're getting called in order to capture savings. The second piece, which is equally valuable for certain companies, is normally if we're using the free data or the easy data, easy to find. If you know at some point it's afternoon's the peak and you shut down all afternoon, you'll get it. But that's a huge shutdown. And especially when you get think about a hotel or a condominium building, when they're responding to these peaks, the only thing they can do is shift their HVAC load. And if I turn off my HVAC for eight hours, my tenants are gonna complain because it's right. gonna get really hot in that room. But if I can get that down to two hour windows, suddenly you know, I can turn off my HVAC for two hours, no one will notice, and I can capture a lot of savings. So by getting narrower and narrower, more precise windows, you're actually suddenly able to respond in ways that you never have before. And so that's the value of the data.
0: And, and how do you, you know, I, I remember when this program first came out. You know, everybody was up in arms because there was there was some winter peaks. I think it was 2014, 2015, and and that was with yeah. a pretty static marketplace. Um, you know, our our the way we consume power, you know, continues to change. Um, you know, how how you know, how do you see it changing? And and you know, what is your algorithm or your AI doing to to accommodate for that? Yeah, there's historically the only thing that really mattered was weather—really hot days,
1: really cold winters. That's what predicated on the peak. Now that was back when there was only 40 companies allowed to try to respond to these peak events. Now in Ontario, there's two and a half thousand companies doing this, so market behavior suddenly becomes a lot more important. Uh, and this year is going to be a very interesting year because we've got a lot of people showing down. Right. And so that fundamentally changes the behavior of the energy market across the board. Uh, as a brief example, most of the time these peaks are caused not by factories, which is what you think, but they're caused by homeowners. And so it's when all the homeowners come home at the exact same time and they all crank their AC at the exact same time. They all turn on their clothes at the exact same time. That's what causes the huge spike in energy usage. But nowadays, everyone's home. Right. Pretty much. So this year is going to be very interesting in that so far it looks like the residential load is about a third of what it normally is. So, just so to be clear, the residential spikes a third of what it normally is. So there's people that are home all day, and they're not cranking their H back at the same time as they used to do because they're, they're running it 24/7, right? Okay. That's going to be the pain across North America where you've got what's normally the we see as a usage curve is what you're used to seeing is not happening anymore.
0: Hmm. So let's unpack that. So, so and 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 what we're talking about here really is is COVID 19 related. This is very. Um, you know, here and now behavior that that that's what you're voicing here. The change in behavior is all driven by our desire to self-isolate and and you know kind of flatten the curve, you know, pick whatever correct social distancing, whatever, you know, catchphrase you want to talk about. That that's what we're voicing here, right? Correct. Yeah. So go ahead. There are some people that are trying to state fears that, you know, we're gonna have
1: a blackout because electricity can't handle this. That's actually the opposite of the truth. Um energy usage is much lower than we'd expect it to be. It's about, in Ontario, it's about a gigawatt lower than we expect, which is a significant chunk of the total grid. Wow. And so they, we're not going to have a blackout. I think we're fine. Don't worry about that. But we are seeing very different usage patterns than what we're, norm, what we're normally seeing. Are, so there's
0: are far we see, flatter? Yeah. Are we seeing more energy and less demand? Uh, or are we seeing less energy and less demand? Less both. Uh, mostly because, so broadly speaking, you can break the energy into four
1: buckets. There's the residential load. There's a the load from small businesses, like basically retail stores, mom and pop shops. There's a the load from decent-sized factories, you know, big commercial towers, you know, mid-tier businesses. And then there's a the load from the massive factories, like the steel mills and the auto so each of those four buckets, broadly speaking, uses about 25% of the total electricity. Right now, one of those fours is completely gone. That's mid. That's the small businesses. All of those mom-and-pop shops are shut down right now. Right. So a quarter of the grid is non-existent.
0: Wow. Now, they're
1: all going home. The so residential low went up a bit, but it's not going up nearly enough to replace that entire 25% of the grid that's now turned off. And for the most part, the huge factories are still running. Um, some of them, like in, in Ontario, Toyota, the big car plant, just shut down this week. So in certain cases, they're going down. But most of the giant steel mills, the giant mines are still running. Right. And you know, to turn off one of those things, that's not something you can do on a, on a whim. It'll, that takes days to shut down.
0: So and, and do you see so you're looking at what, a, like the last week's worth of data? Is that the sample set you're looking at?
1: Yeah, every day is changing. Obviously, I mean, everyone knows it's like COVID right now. Every day there's new announcements. Um, but basically, if you take the usage that you're seeing this week, and compare it to last few years, whether normalized, you're looking at a pretty significant reduction in usage, about 10 percent. Across the board, okay. And the more worrying thing for this coming summer is it's the drop of residential load that's happening at the peaks. So again, that's to your earlier point: power versus energy, and demand versus energy. There's yes, more people are at home, so across the board in terms of kilowatt hours, they're using more electricity all day. But that usage is spread out across the whole day; it's not happening all at once. This is what we're used to seeing.
0: So a couple things there. So. Right now, you're looking at, you know, let's say the last week's of data. It's, it's down 10. percent I mean, with, you know, we can we can make jokes about, you know, the essential services list and how exhaustive it was, but it, it came out kind of late <laughs> last night. Uh, we'll see some more, you know, reduction. I would imagine. Um, but and to your point you just made a minute ago, like historically, the peaks have not come in March. And April, uh, as as a you know, general rule, so you know one could say, you know, okay, this is you know, this is not. It's nice. It's interesting to study. It's something that we can look back at, you know, three years from now and say, hey, what's that about? But it's not from a pure you know peak demand perspective because the peaks usually happen in the summer or the winter. Does this really matter? But I think I think if this continues, that that's really where it starts to make life difficult for people who are managing it, right? Is that that when it comes that's when it comes to bear?
1: Yeah, exactly. So normally, we're trying to predict a one hour spike that happens on these summer peak days. That's the normal normally what our job is. And so if you're trying to manage your energy costs, you're trying to reduce usage for that one hour. The most dangerous days are when you have rain falling at five to six pm. Mm-hmm. And so what that does is the residential load is spiking, it's also raining. And so as a result, the electricity usage is flat from across the grid from noon all the way to 7 p.m. And so now as a factory, you're trying to reduce your usage in a peak hour, but there's seven hours back to back that all look the same. And those are really hard to respond to unless you want to shut down for the total seven hour period,
0: which is Sorry. very difficult to do. And I and I missed that. Why why is, why is does the rain make a flat curve for the whole afternoon?
1: Right. So a huge chunk of what causes these spikes is extremely hot events. So it's everyone going home and cranking their AC to try to cool down. But the rain actually cools down for you. Right? Oh, okay. So if all of a sudden it's raining on a major city, which in Ontario is Toronto, if it rains in Toronto, that massively drops the the need for a cooling load. Yes. So all of a sudden you don't get that spike of usage from 5 to 7 p.m. And so you end up with a flat top. Now what might happen this year is even if there is no rain, because everyone's home anyways, there is no spike, and so you end up with a flat top from noon to seven, no matter what. And now, as a factory trying to manage your energy costs, which hour is a peak hour? Could be any of them. So it becomes far trickier and far more. I mean, obviously, it's our job to figure out how to predict those peaks, so we're working on it. But that's something that becomes far more difficult for companies that are trying to manage the peaks. The other I find it a bit more complicated in the weeds here, but the if you're a factory that's seeing your production go down, unfortunately, but home to the bar, um, they're in the problem where they're certainly desperately trying to find ways to cut costs. or Otherwise, it's to fire employees, which obviously no one wants to do. Right. And there's a whole bunch of tailwinds hitting, or, sorry, headwinds hitting them in the market right now. Natural gas prices just went up. Um, electricity prices in Ontario have gone up 20% in the past few months. Uh, global government went up 20%. So they're seeing their costs going up, which is not ideal timing. But even those companies that are really busy right now, which are usually the bakeries, the greenhouses, you know, people making food, they're extremely busy right now. They've never been busier. Their problem is they're paying, as part of this IPI program, they pay a percent of the total grid cost it's on their usage on these peak hours, which we don't think in the weeds, but that's basically the math work. And if half the factories are using less power, then even if these are using the exact same amount of power, their percent of the grid is now greater. And so their costs are going to go up. Right. Even if there's nothing different. Right. So pretty much no matter what, how your factory is responding to COVID right now, you're in danger of seeing a pretty significant shift in your energy costs, and most likely not going to be a good shift.
0: So what's happening basically is that the, um, you know, the the denominator in the in the calculation basically is the same because somebody's got to foot the bill. It's just there's. Right there's the, the numerator is getting smaller and so or the number of people in it. So your your portion of the uh, the bill, uh, the, the analogy I always use is, you know, ten of us go to the bar and we, you know, we eat chicken wings and we, we drink beer and, and three or four people bugger off. Well the bill's the same. It's just us suckers who got left behind. We got to pay more of the bill, right? Uh, yeah. And, you know, now in this case it's you know suckers is sucker hard. Not the greatest word because those three or four that left the table probably left because
1: they got sick and Agreed. had to leave. Right? <laughs> yeah. So now it's a bit of a weird scenario where, but regardless, to your point, those six or seven that are left, they have to put the bill. Yeah. And yes, it's good that you're still in operations, but now, now you're paying a bigger price. bill, which might actually force more or two more of you to go under. And then the cycle continues. So that's the danger right now. So we're actively reaching out to all of our customers, um, helping them understand how this is going to impact the energy costs in the next month. So I mean, right now, for everyone, most of the news around how COVID-19 is affecting our health, which is obviously the most important right now. Um, Don't deny that whatsoever. However, the danger right now is what this is going to do to our livelihoods. So there's an awful lot of businesses that have seen the revenues go from almost to zero overnight. And they're all desperately looking at ways to save money. So thankfully, energy is one of those places where they can cut costs and we're trying to help companies understand how that's going to impact them moving forward. But the, the danger is if we don't find a way for helping companies to manage the costs, there's gonna be a lot of a lot of people running out of jobs soon.
0: Yeah, and, and so let's play some scenarios out to that effect. So let's say that, you know, this is an unlikely scenario, I think, but it, it's one we all hope for. And that is that, you know, by the end of, let's say, April, this thing we've, we've let's say we've developed a, a um, you know, some kind of cure for it or some kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, vaccine, thank you. Um, you know, and so by May, we're starting to get life back to normal. And so by June, July, we're cruising again. Um, and, and those, you know, we're all coming home, turning on our air conditionings and those peaks return to the market. Um, does this become just kind of an interesting asterisk and, and, and it's easier to manage or, or is there still, are there still challenges in that scenario?
1: Definitely makes things a lot easier uh, for sure. I would say, though, as, as a business, you still want to make sure you understand your costs because there are companies that are already going under. Uh, unfortunately, you know they only have maybe a month of runway. So even going to the end of April, unless there's some significant government subsidies, we will lose jobs. Right. And even if we manage the electricity side of things, I'm not a natural gas expert, so I don't want to go too far down this. But natural gas costs have already increased what, 10 to 15 percent in the last week because of the oil war that's going on right now between Russia and Saudi Arabia. Yes. So even if you manage electricity costs your gas costs, just like so, you know, energy is one of those things that are very heavily tied to what happens in the world around you. And unfortunately, right now, because we're in a crazy time, energy costs are going all over the place.
0: Yeah. And so uh, in, in, in the other in a different scenario where, you know, this this does take a long time to make its way through and we see this, you know, self-isolation continue into June, July and into the summer. Uh, then we have the situation where the the peaks are not as pronounced, uh, and so predicting those, th- there will still be five peaks for that next year. There there has to be. I mean, that's just math, but they will be less pronounced uh, than the rest of them, and that's the concern. Um, so, you know, that's going to make things harder. What what does you you know what what is the software that you guys work for, with the AI the you know how how do you see your software adapting? What, what kind of stuff will you be looking for? Do you see more dispatch events? Do you see longer dispatch events? Like what, what what are the algorithms gonna tell us in, in that scenario? Well,
1: that's something we're working on actively right now. Uh, fundamentally, the problem with predictions is that you're always pulling in historical data to then try to forecast the future. Right. But there has never been a point in history where this has happened. So, how do you train models on something that's never happened before? And so, that's the issue that every forecasting company is running into right now. And so, we're, you know, we're actually working on solving that. Obviously, that's our job. So, we're, you know, building data sets that we can train on. We're comparing this year to previous years. We're running all those algorithms to try to make sure we can get a handle on this. But this year, regardless of what falls apart, the first peak this year is going to be a very interesting one. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think anyone fully knows how market response is going to happen. As a point of reference, normally there's on the biggest peaks, normally there's about two and a half thousand megawatts of response in Ontario, which is about 10% of the total grid. So over okay. a pretty significant chunk of the actively responding to these peaks. However, let's say that the car plant stays down. Let's say Toyota and all the the whole automotive industry stays down this summer. That's about three, four hundred megawatts not responding now. So all of a sudden your models are saying normally during a the peak there's two and a half thousand megawatts of response but they don't know the car plants are down. How do they know that, right? So it's, you have to actually act with the models and actually try to predict these behaviors and input this information because this has never happened before.
0: Right, right. And when you, when your prediction software, I mean, when you guys, are, are you modeling things differently based on how your clients will mitigate so we talked earlier about how, you know, there's there's a conservation play, there's a battery or energy storage play, there's a distributed generation asset play, obviously we want to minimize all of them. But, you know, there's there's more of a tolerance, I think, in a, um, a natural gas fired unit than there is in an energy storage with a finite life. And that's even better than. You know, curtailing you know production. If you're making you know toilet paper in today's environment, you don't want to curtail at all. <laughs> uh, so, do you guys send different signals to the market? You know, are you are you are you involved in all three technologies? And if so, do you send different signals?
1: Yeah. So it's the same fundamental model forecast in the market. However, we basically have the signals based on confidence interval. So broadly speaking, if I have a generator or a battery, I don't really care how often you call me, but don't you dare miss a peak. Because I just invested $10 million in this system, like I can't risk missing a peak. Yep. Right, and so those guys, we've say tell them, let us send you up to 40 calls. We've actually never sent more than 20. So in our contracts, we say, let us send up to 40 calls so that just in case, we'll make sure we get these peaks. So we'll just send them any data that's even remotely dangerous, they'll get a notification. Okay. So It's actually relatively straightforward. Most of our customers, though, want to get all the peaks, but don't want to shut down when necessary. So they're in our second group of customers, which would be respond up to 10 times a year, and we'll still make sure we get all the peaks. And then there's a third group of customers, which are rare, but they do exist, which are you know often chemical factories, that sort of thing. And they can only respond if it's basically guaranteed savings. So we're only going to call them two to three times a year at most, but they're going to get two to three peaks. Right. Wow. So they are fully understanding they're going to miss a couple of peaks. But they're okay with that because when they respond, they're going to guarantee savings. And that's how they still are able to capture a significant amount of savings in the program without necessarily responding more than two or three times.
0: Wow. Okay. Huh. And and <laughs> that's fascinating. Uh, and do you do you dispatch assets into, into a formal demand response program as well or just into ICI? We do demand response as well. It's usually an add-on. Uh,
1: the, Amount of money on the table in DR is about, you know, tenth of what you're getting in ICI. However, you're also responding far less often. So from a payment per hour production loss, it's similar. So we'll usually start with ICI and once the customer's on board, we'll mention DR as well as an add-on. Right. So it's the demand response market this year went up in most places. is about 60,000 a megawatt material with the exception of uh, Leamington. Which is where the greenhouses are. Their price went down a fair bit. But in general, there's you know decent amount of money there, but it's similar to what you get in the U.S. market. It's a lot less than we get in people. So the
0: the ICI, the global adjustment, that's the stake and the demand response is kind of the dessert menu, so to speak. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. What else, um, Thomas? Are you seeing in this current? And I, I just you know you're you're clearly thinking a lot about it. I don't want to miss anything. Are there other you know, energy or electricity related things that you're seeing in this, you know, present time that maybe we haven't touched on?
1: In Ontario specifically, the main ways you save money are through demand response and ICI, uh, which would be the peak pricing. In other markets, there's also potential savings through what's called real-time arbitrage, which is essentially responding in real-time to real-time pricing events. Right. That's a commodity. Now, in certain markets, you can save a lot of money. You know, almost $100,000 a year per megawatt, so pretty significant savings in Ontario about 24000 So it's not nothing, right? It's, you know, a lot less than what you're getting in other programs. So most of our customers in Ontario don't bother with that third pro uh, third product, um, but in other markets it's more impressive. And see- then of course you've got your standard plethora of lighting rebates and all these other energy efficiency rebates, which are valuable, but right. we focus on software.
0: Right. Now, on that piece about energy arbitrage, you know, do you see – so let's step back from the current crisis in which we're uh, placed around COVID-19 and move more towards, you know, the next five years in Ontario as we go through a an overhaul of our uh, infrastructure, I think. Um, you know, do you have a sense of where the province is going and if so, does that change the upside on energy arbitrage?
1: Say in the next five years, I wouldn't expect massive changes, fundamentally because the nuclear power plants, several of them are being retrofitted, and so that's putting strain on our energy supply. And the system operator, which is the IESO, they manage the grid, they want to make sure that when these companies, or when these peak events happen, while these plants are being retrofitted, that we don't have a blackout. And so they're going to want to make absolute certainty that there's enough companies responding to these peak events that we don't have a blackout. So I don't see them meddling with ICI too much in the near future because the vast majority of the responsive load in Ontario comes from ICI, not from demand response. Mm. After those forty five years, all that's are off. Uh-huh. Um, specifically because the global adjustment component of your bill in Ontario is this black box. Everyone hates it. No one understands how this thing works. Right, And obviously they sent some releases that explained bits and pieces of it, but fundamentally no one knows what the global adjustment charge will be next month. Like it's ridiculous. So at some point, they are probably going to try to do something to manage that part of your bill. That being said, there's no way they can get rid of this ICF program without replacing it with something of equal or greater value. Just because if they tried to do that, we would lose tens of thousands of jobs in a month. Too many companies that depend on the program. Right. If you look at other markets that are more advanced, so especially in Europe, I think what's logical is that they try to have reduced the emphasis on these very, very short spikes that only happen a few times a year, and increase the emphasis on the spikes that happen far more often, so the real-time arbitrage, the energy arbitrage that we're mentioning earlier. Right? And the easiest way to do that would be to merge global adjustment with the commodity rate. That way, going all the way back to what we started talking about in the beginning of the conversation, when you're talking to a farmer and you say your total bill is 15 cents per kilowatt hour, that is actually your total cost power. It actually is your total cost of power combined. Right, right now, you've got commodity cost of power and global adjustment separated, and no one really understands that, and it's confusing. If they eventually merge those, you could still have some version of peak pricing, so the ICF program, while also greatly increasing the value of energy arbitrage. Right. At the same time, which is essentially incentivizing the kind of technology that we actually want in the grid. Right. The responsive load. And so HVAC response and, response and
0: things. So do you see, in terms of what to do with this big bill, um, you see it, in your view, more moving towards you know, staying in the ratepayers' bucket as opposed to coming out and putting it in the taxpayers' bucket? I know Doug Ford proposed that as an
1: option. Yes. Um, I'd be surprised if we do, just because as soon as they do that, there's... Already a lawsuit before the government that essentially is arguing that this is a tax and therefore it is not valid and not legal. If they actually move it into the tax bucket, that's, you know, they're going to deal with some regulatory challenges there. Right. So I'd be surprised that happens. It's certainly possible. Uh, I, I don't see it happening though. The current budget's already in deficit and the government's constantly trying to balance it. I don't know if we ever will, but that's constant a promise. Yeah. And moving this into the tax bucket. For those who aren't aware, global adjustment in Ontario is about a billion dollars a month. So this is $12 billion annual cost. So if you suddenly move that into the province's budget, that basically kills any chance of balancing it. And so I don't see that really being a winning choice for a premier. So I'd be surprised if they actually went
0: ahead with that. Yeah. Um, now, as we continue to gaze into your crystal ball in terms of the future, what, where do you see Ontario going in terms of our global... You know energy supply mix so you know a lot of the conversations we've been having on this podcast have been about you know electrification and have been about you know different renewable technologies on the gas side on the electricity side you know we have the the, the significant uptick in, in ev electric vehicles um you know we have the kind of ongoing tension around nuclear and you know not in my backyard do you see us you know, continuing to refurb nuclear, keep it going. You know, we have wind and solar. Where does natural gas fit into that? You know, from a high level, what's your view of, you know, maybe 10 years out where our supply mix is going in the province?
1: Always difficult to predict these because, unfortunately, the people who are in charge is actually not the experts. It's not right. the ISO, it's the Ministry of Energy. And, and that changes every four years with elections. So you never really know what's going to happen. That being said, and for those who aren't aware, Ontario is already extremely green, or at least, you know, we don't pollute. Uh, 57% of electricity is nuclear, 25% is hydro. So you end up with barely 10% of power coming from natural gas. We have no coal left, and there are many days where our natural gas even is less than 10%. So we're a very green grid overall. In the future, I think we're definitely pushing wind over solar when the growth of wind has been far more substantial than the growth of solar in this province. And that'll probably stay, continue, I would say, moving forward. The, the bigger issue we're running into as we get more and more wind, you can't just replace one megawatt of wind with one megawatt of nuclear. It just doesn't work back to back. We're already running into a problem where when we need power the most, uh, it's just not there. And so unless we find some miraculous solution to to store a gigabyte, or gigawatt of uh, batteries in our grid, we're still going to need those natural gas speaker plants there to respond during these peak events. So as an example, there's, well, one, the EVs are becoming more and more prevalent in our province as well as the across North America. But there are, I remember hearing a report from the CEO of Toronto Hydro. There were something like 25 to 30 jurisdictions in the city of Toronto where if they had more than two electric vehicles plugged in, that local transformer would blow. Wow. And that's because the transformer was built for the cul-de-sac. So let's say there's 10 houses. The transformer was built for those 10 houses plus a margin of error of probably 100% just to be safe. But one electric car plugged in, when it's pulling that power from the grid, it's using almost as much as those houses combined. So you put in one house, one electric car, and that already puts strain in the grid. You put in two, and that could blow the transformer. Hmm. Now imagine if every house in the whole grid, all of Ontario, gets electric cars. The, As mentioned earlier, these peak times when the grid's at most strain is almost always when everyone comes home from work. But what also comes home when the people come home is electric cars. Right. Now you're doubling that problem of having a way more demand at the exact same time. So there's the need for some level of control on the demand side. It gets more and more important as we get more. EVs in the grid, but also more solar mm. because you can't control the wind, you can't control the sun. So, if you can't control supply as well as we used to, you need to control demand more. Mm. So, what we mean by that is there needs to be some function of whether it's pricing. So, let's say electricity is incredibly expensive when everyone comes home. That way, you don't charge your car at that time. You have to delay it and charge it at night when we have plenty of demand. Or it's the to demand response the utilities directly control those assets but there has to be some level of control of the demand side of the grid because we're gradually losing control of the supply side of the grid
0: Hmm. wow and and you know from what i'm seeing or learning i mean that particularly with evs and things of that nature that's where the smart grid fits in i mean the technology is there it's a matter of you know figuring out and applying it in a broad um, broad spectrum. Is that your sense as well that it's just a figuring out the technical issues?
1: Technical is part of it, but I'd say far more. But is regulatory is just getting this through. Um, as a prime example that I'm sure you're aware of is I forget the exact nomenclature, but it's like the impact assessment you have to do for batteries and generators uh, yes. when you're installing them on the grid. Yes. So. Uh, I'll do a, a layman's explanation of it, but fundamentally when you're trying to install a battery or a generator on the grid, the utility needs to make sure that you're not harming the local infrastructure. So let's say that you're installing it at point A, is on a transmission grid. If that grid only has a megawatt of capacity on it left, and you were to install a 1.5 megawatt battery, they would tell you you're not allowed, because if you were to charge that battery on the peak hour of the whole year, you would blow the local line, which no one with a battery would be charging it during a peak. That's incredibly stupid. Right. But regardless, be extremely safe. The Utilities say you're not allowed to install that battery unless you personally pay to upgrade the entire local transmission grid, which is going to be you know, half a million dollars or a million dollars. It's exorbitantly expensive. And so that's what's slowing down significant adoption of generators and batteries in the local grid. But it's also what's stopping a ton of new technologies coming to the, to the forefront just because it's the reason why the utilities demand that is completely understandable. You have to make sure the reliability of the grid, and that's their job. And I completely respect that. And they don't transparently show you where there is constraints for security reasons. Really the only way you know this, if from as a you know battery installer or generator installer, is you have to pay the utility some exorbitant fee to try to figure out whether or not there's an impact. Right. So examples like that are where really what's holding back innovation in the grid isn't tech.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's a great observation, and I know our members of our team are part of a couple of OEB Ontario Energy Board panels to try to see if we can't you know migrate that uh, that forward. But uh, certainly um, innovation innovation is required. Um, you know, on that notion of innovation, what um, what are you guys looking at at Empowered in terms of you know what's next? Are there you know projects that you're looking at that you kind of are excited about or or concepts that you're getting your head around or the things you can kind of share with us that are kind of next for your team in terms of, you know, building on to what you're doing and better serving your clients?
1: I think a big part of what we're doing moving forward, which kind of ties into what you just said, which is the technology is there, Um, but most people just aren't aware of it. So we're working a lot more with IoT. Providers, So it's companies okay. that are already installing that control, lighting controls, conveyor controls, building automation systems. There's a lot of really cool technology that's there today. The problem is all of these controls companies and IoT companies have no idea how the energy market works. Like it's way too complicated. Mm. And the energy companies they don't have any idea how, how all these IoT devices work. And the customers there in the middle just trying to figure out the best bang for their buck. And so what we're trying to do is essentially help all those parties get together. And say, Hey, HVAC control company, what you thought, you know, installing HVAC controls in company A would deliver a five year payback. Actually, if you work with us, it's a five month payback. And now it's a no brainer for the customer to install those HVAC controls because it lets them capture all these additional savings. Hmm. So we're really trying to build that ecosystem of vendors to help the customers greatly save more money, but also install these really cool IoT devices, help these IoT companies and these vendors install and sell their, their products in the market. And then also help the grid get a lot more responsive so that we can move and transition to a more renewable energy infrastructure. And we're then, kind of being that linchpin that connects them all together. That's our yeah. goal. Cool.
0: And increasingly, and then, we
1: have to obviously get out of the as well. But
0: Right, right. And, and is that IoT predominantly around, you know, space heating and cooling in HVAC? Or are you getting into, you know, certain industrial processes? Or, you know, what's the, what's the expanse of that IoT integration that you guys are working on?
1: So we're agnostic. At the end of the day, we're the guys telling you how the energy market works. And if you're somebody that has pump control systems and that's what you sell, I'm happy to work with you. We are the ones. we don't get, you know, becoming experts in your specific IoT device. That's your job. So we'll happily partner with absolutely any type of IoT device you can think of, but we ourselves won't be the ones telling the company how to manage that, right? So if you're telling me that that pump can be flexible in a certain way, I'm happy to control it to save money. Hmm.
0: Okay. Cool. Um, back to the COVID thing for a minute. What, what, um, what is your firm doing? You know, are you, you know, working from home or are you, how are you guys managing through this uh, crisis on a day-to-day basis?
1: Yeah, the whole team's at home right now working remotely. I'm currently in the office. I'm literally the only person on the entire floor, which is uh-huh. kind of nice. It's basically my own, you know, private office, like the entire building. Um, but the rest of the team, they're all working from home. So far I found, you know, we're still quite productive the team's doing well but it is definitely something to adapt to yeah i think everyone's kind of complaining that everyone's workout schedules have gone out the door we've all gained weight <laughs> it's gonna be weeks. Yeah.
0: well i yeah i had a pretty good rhythm you know january february most of march you know going to the gym and and then the gym closed right and so now i'm yeah. <laughs> uh, trying to figure out my new routine and and the, and the you know the reality is the social distancing and the the uh, you know is all the right thing but at the same time we have to be really mindful of um, you know the, the mental you know separation or the or, or conversely the mental benefits that come from you know interacting face-to-face and I, I think we take that for granted and at times like this we really see you know how important that is so um, yeah it's uh, we, we haven't figured it out either we're all working from home but we're doing what we can with video conferencing and things of that nature but it's uh, it's not perfect it's uh, you know, and, and and I think the uncertainty of how long it's going to last is also, you know, grinding on people. Um, so, yeah. are you are kind I, of some team members that We some of
1: us thought we were introverts, but this is kind of putting that to a test to see how <laughs> introverted are we really. How long can you go without seeing another human being?
0: <laughs> and are you seeing more? Uh, are you getting more dialogue with your clients? Are they expressing concerns, or are they or they're maybe too busy focused on other stuff they can't even get to that right now.
1: We're definitely talking with clients. I would say that there's definitely a lot of fear, and like I said earlier, a lot of companies are really starting to focus on cost cutting just because they're seeing a recession down the pipeline. That being said, right now, really this past two weeks, most companies have been a bit shell shocked and are just trying to prep for COVID-19. They haven't had time to make new decisions.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Thomas, maybe kind of in closing, this has been fun. How you know if people you know once they get the immediate stuff behind you behind them rather. Um, you know, what's the best way to get in t- contact with you guys, your website, you know, kind of what's the best way to loop in with you folks and, and discuss kind of what the future of energy means, particularly in the next six to 12 months? Yeah, sure. I mean, happily just kind uh, of website. We have a live chat as
1: well as email and phone to reach out to us directly. And it's N-powered, E-N-powered. Uh, you can find us online pretty straightforward. Cool. And then usually if you go to the chat, it's either uh, one of our marketing people or me that answers it. So it might even get to me right away.
0: <laughs> oh, oh, wow, so it's not, uh, it's not a, an AI, it's an actual person uh, behind that. Crazy how that works, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, awesome. Cool. Well, Thomas, this has been great. Uh, I really appreciate you carving out time at a busy time uh, to talk about uh, a topic that is certainly extremely relevant uh, as we enter um, uncharted territory, to say the least. So I appreciate it. You guys uh, are doing great stuff and you're clearly serving your clients well. Uh, keep it up! Uh, thanks for uh, being a guest, and uh, we we appreciate your time and and your sh- freely sharing your knowledge and your expertise with. us. Thank you very much. Okay. Absolutely, and as a last note, just happened yeah. literally right now, the
1: Ontario Energy Board just announced they're slashing hydro rates for our homeowners. So okay, there you go. changing. Uh, cur-
0: uh, couldn't couldn't be more up to date. CNN and CBC News <laughs> are not as up to date as this podcast. Well, that's great. Uh, we'll we'll go check that out as soon as we sign off here uh thanks thomas thank you have a good day